Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, I talk with Lacey Hankin, a volunteer with the Washoe County Sheriff's Office Search and Rescue Team. Nevada's boasted plenty of outdoor recreation areas, but hazards exist if people aren't careful. So Hankin shares some safety advice. After that, reporter Carly Savageo walks us through the importance of the new 988 hotline number. It's the mental health counterpart to dialing 911. At the end of our show, our friends over at CityCast Las Vegas share a segment about citizen legislators and a lawsuit that threatens some lawmakers' jobs. In March, Indiana couple Ronnie and Beverly Baker were on a road trip and got stranded in the Nevada desert where their GPS took them on a road that was not suitable for their RV. When their RV got stuck, they tried to drive their car that they were towing to find help. But that got stuck too, and unfortunately, after a week of searching, only Beverly was found alive. Every few years, people go missing while road tripping across the state, and sometimes they don't make it back. Other times, there are people just out recreating, either hiking, biking, skiing, snowshoeing, or something else, and they find themselves in a dangerous or sometimes even life-threatening situation. Luckily, there is an amazing group of volunteers with sheriff's offices across the state that are available 24-7 to help people make it back alive. Lacey Hankin is one such volunteer with the Washoe County Sheriff's Search and Rescue Hasty Team, a team that is on call 24-7 ready to get out and look for people at a moment's notice. Lacey and I sat down to talk about some precautions you may want to take when recreating in Nevada to stay safe so you'll hopefully never have to encounter one of these amazing and selfless volunteers. All right, well, I'm here with Lacey Hankin, who is a rescue technician with the Hasty team for Washoe County Search and Rescue. And you're also a fire ecologist for Yosemite National Park, which is really cool. So thanks for joining me on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And so this, what we're talking about today is desert safety and, and recreating in nature in Nevada. And so to start off, can you explain to me just what search and rescue is for people that don't know it? Sure. So search and rescue, at least in Washoe County, is a group of volunteers that are trained to assist with anything that's not really in an urban environment. So we're trained in backcountry rescue, rope rescue, swift water dive, those kinds of disciplines where people might be recreating outdoors and end up in a situation where they might need help. And then we're there to assist them. Yeah. So I guess when people, when I think of search and rescue, right, I'm thinking of like someone stranded on a mountaintop and there's an avalanche and you have to get a helicopter out there or something. Is that generally what you're doing is like doing these kind of superhero action movie type rescues or is it, is it maybe not necessarily that all the time? That certainly can happen. Those are always the exciting ones, but we get a whole range of calls. I would say our most common type of call is usually a lost or injured hiker who might just need some help getting back to the trailhead. So we get a lot, mostly backcountry calls, some stranded vehicles and other sorts of injuries, but those are kind of our most common. You said you were part of the Hasty team. What is that? Yeah, so the Hasty team is one of several teams for Washoe County. Some of the other teams include WICSAR, which is Washoe County Search and Rescue, the Specialized Vehicle Unit, which does the off-road vehicles and vehicle rescue. We have a Air Squadron, which has our helicopters as well as planes and a dog team as well. 
And so the hasty team is technically proficient, more technical rescue oriented part of the search and rescue program. So we are trained in high angle rope operations, swift water rescue. We have a ski and avalanche rescue team. Uh, as well as helicopter hoisting. So that's kind of our specialty where we train every week in those variety of disciplines. How often are you getting those calls? Like, like you said, you just like different times of year is different. Is, is this a busy time of year in the summer or is it, is this a slower time? The summer is usually fairly busy. A lot of hikers who need some assistance, but it really varies. It's been quieter during the COVID years. We're not sure if that's fewer people outdoors or or what it is, but there's certainly kind of a fluctuation there. But the summer is is pretty popular. And then we do get a fair amount of calls in the shoulder seasons when conditions might be changing more rapidly and, and people might be a little less prepared for those variety of conditions. And are you just like on call 24-7 or like how does that work? Are you just like at a moment's notice, you're ready to go? We are always on call, although the way it works is whoever's available to go will go and we get a call. But we do get calls at all hours of the night, morning, day. Uh, So we all basically live out of our cars and are are ready with any of the equipment we might need at any time. So talking about some of these emergencies that you're going out and helping, like you said, like hikers and stuff, what are some of the most common emergencies that you're seeing this time of year? Sure. So one of the most common things we see on calls, at least recently, are folks who end up lost or injured or just in in over their heads in certain conditions. So we still do have a lot of snow up high in the mountains. And a lot of people, it's 90 degrees at the trailhead and are heading out and not prepared to encounter those types of conditions. So we've had some recent calls where people have gotten stuck in deep snow in shorts and sneakers and end up out after dark with nothing really to keep them warm or dry. So that that's a really common scenario where you might not anticipate the amount of time you might be out there or the conditions you encounter. So Certainly just having that common sense and self-awareness of, of when you need to turn around if you might be in over your head is, is one key to preventing scenarios like that. Do you have any sort of tips for people that are going out? What are some things that you should be conscious of? Sure. Well, it definitely depends on the area. So I would definitely always start with checking the weather forecast for that area, making sure the temperature and the likelihood of a storm or, or anything like that. As well as as we're getting into fire season, checking if there's any travel restrictions or nearby fires, that's something to be aware of as well. And in Nevada, you know, we have really high mountainous environments as well as really dry and hot deserts. So there's a variety of things that can happen really quickly. So just being aware of of what might happen in the next 24 hours, telling friends or family what your plan is and, and where you intend to go, what time you'll be back. And then making sure you're prepared with some warm layers, some rain gear, enough food and water for the day, your cell phone. That, that's a huge help these days for, for our search and rescue efforts. So definitely carrying that with you. So oftentimes we get calls right at the end of the day, right when it's transitioning tonight. And that's when people have that realization where, oh, I, I might actually be in trouble here and, and I could use some help. Another story of a search and rescue that went well is a recent mountain biker broke their ankle. 
while near the Hobart Creek Reservoir southwest of Reno. The hasty team was dispatched and the biker was airlifted to safety. Even when recreating properly, accidents can happen. Now, talking about just traveling across the state to Highway 50, the loneliest highway in America, right? We have a very barren state. It's, it's, it's most of the population lives in an urban center and there's very small towns scattered throughout, but there's a lot of space. If you're just driving across the desert, I feel like every year you hear about some people that maybe listen to Google Maps or something and it was like, oh, this is a shortcut and it's a dirt road and they get stuck in the snow and sometimes they end up dying or are out there. Is that something that you're responding to a lot? And, and how do you guys tackle those, those emergencies? Absolutely. That's another major theme of our winter calls a lot of the time is folks who are following their GPS blindly and not taking in their surroundings and, and assessing whether the road might be kind of beyond the capacity of their vehicle. So that happens a lot near Reno where, where we are based. And so certainly you can use the GPS system. They're, they're great resources, but just being aware of where it's taking you, maybe checking a map as well. In Nevada, I always carry a road atlas. And so I definitely recommend having actual paper maps and knowing how to use them, especially since a lot of the state is out of cell service. So just being self-sufficient in that way is definitely one recommendation I have. And then, you know, just always having extra water in your car, having some extra clothes, having extra food, just in case something does happen. And same as hiking, it, it's also important to check the weather, even if you're just driving. We have extreme heat waves and we have flash floods that can happen really fast. So just being aware of what you might be traveling through is a really important aspect of it as well. One thing that happens a lot is out in Dog Valley, which is just west of Reno, when our main highway gets shut down in the winter because of weather, Google Maps will send people over the Dog Valley Pass, which is an unpaved forest road that is not plowed. So I think we've gotten in the habit of getting about one call a week to go rescue a car that has tried to follow Dog Valley in the winter over the pass. So that's one of our common calls. You know, if you do end up in a scenario where your car is stuck, staying with your car is one of the most important things you can do from a search and rescue perspective. So it's a lot easier for us to find a big car rather than find one person traveling on foot away from their car. So that's definitely a tip I would give if, if you find yourself stuck somewhere. <laughs> Has the like extreme heat or, and or wildfires complicated search and rescue efforts at all? That's a great question. We do, we do assist in fire evacuations, but in terms of other types of rescues, we don't often encounter travel restrictions or, or inability to access a trail because of a fire or extreme heat. That's something that we certainly keep an eye on. We have paramedics on our team who are always with us in the backcountry. So they keep an eye on us in terms of rescuer safety, as well as can assist people who might be experiencing heat-related illness. But that's certainly a common issue in the summer here. Any more tips that came to mind while we were chatting that you want to talk about before we wrap up? I didn't touch on just making sure to have sun protection and being aware of potential wildlife interactions like rattlesnakes that have potential to have a negative interaction. So really just emphasizing that situational awareness, common sense, and making good decisions throughout your travels. 
Now we go from safety to emergency numbers, and we have a story from our reporter Carly Savageau. That's right. Carly sat down with me and interviewed Misty Vaughn Allen with the Nevada Office of Suicide Prevention to talk about 988, a mental health version of 911. And just a heads up for our audience, we do discuss suicide in this next segment. So if you're particularly sensitive to the topic, you may want to consider skipping the next seven minutes. And you can find timestamps in the description below. I am here with reporter Carly Savageau, and we are talking about the new 988 number that is available to Nevadans um, now. It's, it's, it's now available. And so the 988 number, it's similar to the 911 number. It's an emergency hotline, but instead of for crimes or, or, or emergencies like fires or medical emergencies, it's for mental health emergencies, right? Yep. It used to be a 10-digit number, and now they transition to a three-digit number, like you said, similar to 911. So yeah, it's essentially a suicide hotline. You can still call the original 10-digit number. So it goes to the suicide prevention hotline, and both numbers are still in operation. I also talked to Misty Vaughn Allen, the coordinator of Nevada's Office of Suicide Prevention. It is a behavioral health crisis line that I believe will really increase access for those struggling with a crisis or any other mental health challenge to easily access the right responders and get connected to the right help that they need. Is this run by the state or is this a federal program or or who's running it? So that's kind of like a multi-layered question. So it's a national number, the National Suicide Hotline. It's always been national and the 988 is national. But the hotline itself is, it's a national number, but they can tell by your area code where you're at. And so they'll direct you to a local mental health service. I went to the Suicide Prevention Center to meet with uh, Misty. So there's a local, it's staffed by local people and stuff like that. You call 988 and a well-trained responder will answer to mainly listen, offer support and de-escalation of a crisis or suicide, and connect to resources. They are trained in various models of um, suicide intervention and crisis intervention to really hear the person's needs, really listen, which helps de-escalate a lot of that pain and crisis. And then as they're listening, they'll work with that person to determine the best safety plan to keep them safe after they end the call. You know, when talking about mental health, I know Nevada usually ranks pretty low in terms of how it's doing with mental health. How has Nevada fared in terms of mental health and suicide in the past? So 2005, it was third ranking, highest rates in suicide. And since then, it's gone down a lot. As of 2020, it was 15th, which is still pretty high, but it's a lot better than third. And it's kind of bounced around in the last two decades. It did go down in rates in 2021 by like 0.7 points. 80% of those that call into the suicide prevention lifeline, soon to be 988, are able to de-escalate with just listening. Why has Nevada kind of seen less suicides in recent years? So according to Misty, part of it is the programs that we've put into mental health and suicide prevention. There's a lot of like community trainings now that train people that are like community leaders, like coaches and teachers and even peers, like peer training on how to deal with the signs of suicide and what to do with that and have more of a support system that way. And then she also said the pandemic, I was surprised by this fact, 
that because everyone was kind of checking in on each other in the beginning, and we were kind of all going through a collective trauma, basically, the suicide rates went down just because people were talking more about mental health and checking in on each other and stuff like that. Yeah. And and how will this change with the new 988 number? How will that affect their ability to tackle mental health emergencies and suicide scares and, and things like that in Nevada? So a lot of the emphasis is on treating mental health emergencies with the same care as like physical health emergencies. With 988, it'll be easier for people to access the number. It's a lot easier to memorize a three-digit number than a 10-digit number, especially if you're going through a mental health crisis. And it'll be easier for people to access that de-escalation services. Several years ago, as they were building towards the 988 implementation, there were federal funding sources to help with capacity building and help with implementation of this. So they've been able to increase staffing through funding resources, and, and they, they use voice over the internet so they can have staff from other areas. So for, for many years, we couldn't utilize the wonderful population in Las Vegas because it was in the center call response. But now they can, they can get responders from all over the state and other areas, which is really, really wonderful. So they have been bolstering their responders, adding to trainings, making sure you know, there's culturally competent response, uh, response in English and Spanish. And if there are other languages needed, they, they use a language line for hundreds of different languages to help with that crisis response. I think they project that they'll get like a 42% increase in calls with the shorter number. I think by 2024, they're expected to get like 100,000 calls annually. The other thing about 988 is they have not only, you know, the phone conversation, but chat and text. So you have the technology to meet different users who prefer a different way of communicating. One concern brought up by an elected official during a legislative committee that meets between legislative sessions is the cooperation with law enforcement regarding the hotline. Law enforcement may be contacted if the caller is deemed a safety threat to themselves or others, a situation that raised concerns given past tragedies that have occurred between police and people experiencing mental health crises. But a representative with Nevada law enforcement said training is underway to better prepare officers to handle mental health emergencies. If you want to read Carly's full story, you can find that on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Now we are going to hear from our friends over at CityCast Las Vegas. They aired a podcast episode recently about citizen legislators and a lawsuit that is against them. And just a disclosure that one of the hosts of CityCast Las Vegas, David Figler, who you'll hear from in this episode, has been involved in litigation with one of the legislators discussed. He talks more about those legal proceedings in the full episode, which you can find by searching for CityCast Las Vegas wherever you get your podcasts. Well, let's let's define some terms really quick. Uh, we refer to our legislatures, those people who serve the state in the Nevada Senate and the Nevada Assembly, as a citizen legislature, because it is expected and anticipated uh, that they have day jobs, that their full-time job is not legislator. Mm. They only meet for 120 days every two years, 
uh, and they don't get paid for any work that they do in the interim unless it's a special session that's called, that they would have to have jobs. And so we have one of the few citizen legislatures in the country. The, the framers of our Nevada Constitution want us to have a citizen legislature. Yeah. And while I'm no historian, I've, I've heard the tale told many a time that, you know, the, the beginnings of Nevada were humble. It was very undeveloped land for the most part. We had a very sparse population. Uh, it wasn't anticipated that the people's business would require more than a meeting every other year for only 120 days. So, you know, the early legislators were ranchers and farmers and probably people from the clergy. And so the idea being, hey, we don't want to take you away from your cattle or your crops or your congregation too long. So, hey, is it too much of a burden to ask you to come in to the capital every other year for just a few months, work out the people's business, and then go back to doing what you have to do? Okay, that's how we got started. Now it's kind of sort of maybe under fire. So I, I understand that the Nevada Policy Research Institute has put together a lawsuit contesting this idea that our public officers can have more than one job, at least in certain cases. Yeah, yeah. So the NPRI uh, is essentially, and again, a libertarian bend uh, conservative-ish think tank that is, by their own mission statement, designed to keep you know public officers accountable to the people. Okay. And there is a provision in the Nevada Constitution that has forever suggested that people who hold public office cannot also serve in the legislature. And the reason for that is is quite simple. It's a basic concept of democracy, which is separation of powers. Hmm. So the concept here being uh, you cannot serve the legislative branch if you also are serving another branch, that it's inherently a conflict of interest. And this question has lingered for decades as to whether or not somebody who holds a government job mm -hmm. can also hold a, an elected spot in the Nevada state legislature. And so when you say government job, does this mean like a teacher and like a firefighter? Or are we talking like somebody who's like in a higher up elected position or appointed position? Well, I think elected position specifically would be excluded. And I think no one has that in disagreement. We're okay. really talking. And if you look into the, the belly of the NPRI <laughs> lawsuit, they just had a recent win up in the Nevada Supreme Court to move forward, are, are basically saying anyone, anyone who is employed by the government cannot serve in the legislature. That is their basic principle. Now, not all government jobs are created equally. And I think, Sonia, you got it right there. Is there a difference between a teacher serving in the legislature and someone like a deputy district attorney or a firefighter, someone who wields probably more authority as the nature of their government job than someone else? Is there someone who is serving in the government and in the legislature who triggered this lawsuit? The short answer to that is yes. The way that NPRI did this particular piece of litigation is that they named specific individuals and quite a few who hold government jobs. 
the main person they seem to have in their sights was the Senate majority leader, whose name is Nicole Cannizzaro. Uh, and at the time the lawsuit was initiated, Senator Cannizzaro was also a chief deputy district attorney over at the Clark County District Attorney's Office. And she was not the only Clark County District Attorney who was serving in the legislature. Melanie Scheibel also, who was appointed by Nicole to be the head of the judiciary, where things such as prosecutor reform laws would be considered as the, as the head of that committee as well. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of came up in the public eye in the controversy of the death penalty, hmm. where it's a, a ban on the death penalty passed through the Nevada State Assembly, but never even got as much as a hearing in the Nevada Senate because the head of the judiciary, where it would have gone, said basically, oh, we don't have time for that. That's not a major issue. Canizaro and Scheibel work for the Clark County District Attorney, who is an elected uh, official in the executive branch. And Steve Olson is a proponent of the death penalty. So any bill, such as the one that swam through the Nevada Assembly, had to go to his employees, Canizaro and Scheibel. They had to say, yeah, uh, we're going to hear it. And they didn't even give it a hearing. So, you know, that caused a lot of controversy in circles outside this NPRI lawsuit. But the NPRI lawsuit certainly addresses things like that as well. So this NPRI lawsuit specifically addresses people who are employed by the government. What about people who might have a conflict of interest with other jobs? Like, say, they're a real estate agent or they have, you know, a small business. I mean, theoretically, if there's a conflict of interest in the first situation, there might be a conflict of interest in the second Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in my way of looking at it, these are all kind of interconnected issues by relying on a citizen legislature, by assuming that people have day jobs, that those day jobs are inherently going to impact their choice of legislation, what they can stop or, or, or what they're going to vote for. And, you know, theoretically, all that is known to the voters. And so if the voters want somebody who is intrinsically tied to the real estate profession. They know that. And I think they probably presume that that person, if they're tied to, say, landlords, are going to be very pro-landlord up in the Nevada State Legislature. I, I get that's all part of the process. And if people are offended by that, they always have the option to vote them out. The beef is that, like, they should know better. <laughs> you know, that who should, who should you, know better? That, who? that the person elected should know better, that if they are... Okay. If they're a landlord, if they represent real estate interests, that when a bill comes up talking about tenant rights hmm. or fundamental fairness or affordable housing, if it is contrary to the interests of their employer or their profession, that there probably should be some manner of, if not simply disclosure, recusal. Right. Because okay. no, no legislator doesn't have the ability to say, I'm not going to play on this particular bill because I directly will benefit from it. Right. Um, you know, there are some rules of recusal, but the ethereal rules aren't there. So if there's a direct, direct benefit, in other words, if there's a piece of legislation that is going to result in, let's just keep using the real estate person, sure. so sort of ability to translate to specific dollars in their pocket. They'd have to recuse himself. Well, let's imagine here that we have people who hold other jobs aren't 
allowed to run for elected office. The state legislators, they don't make a lot of money. I'm seeing here per diem of roughly $160 for up to 60 days. We're looking at less than 10K. Who can afford to be a legislator if they don't have a second job? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and that's part of the argument is like, you know, they're basically, though not really, but basically volunteers, right? Mm. So, you know, if not them, who's going to do it? The NPRI lawsuit is interesting because it has shown some light on a system that is vulnerable uh, to a little bit of light coming into it. But it also kind of begs this question of like, these sort of conflicts of interest, this sort of pressure cooker on citizen legislators to to come up with all the laws and only doing it every other year. I mean, is Nevada doing its best right now to govern uh, through the system that we have set up? A lot of laws that get passed in the last last days of the 120 days because it is a, a cutoff. Mm-hmm. It, it can't extend unless there's a special session. And that's a big deal that rarely happens. Or when it does happen, it has to be very focused on one topic. And some of the legislators literally said on the record, they just said, oh, well, too, it's too late. We just have to pass this. We're running out of time. We're running out of time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Lacey Hankin, Carly Savageau, Misty Von Allen, David Figler, and Sonia Swanson for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Jackie Valley, Michelle Rendells, and Riley Snyder. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, jazz music that makes you want to snap your fingers and tap your foot along with the beat, or whatever else is on your mind. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Boy, two weeks off. We've, uh, <laughs> you and I got... We're losing it. We got it. We got it. We take, two, you take, take two weeks off and uh, you, you forget how to read a script.